You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions in the comments to our mailbox at letstalktorah.gmail.com, and, of course, I will answer as many as I can. And I don't know what's going on over here with my computer. It is not behaving, and I don't know why. But, oh, now it's working. No, it's still not working. Okay, I did something really strange over here, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, I just heard a great story. Just a great story. There's a shirt. You know, I wear my white shirts. Um, there's a company in London called, I think it's, I always pronounce it Charles T. Wright. I think people pronounce it Charles Tirrett. It's a shirt company. They make nice white dress shirts. They probably make other stuff also. But um, I, in the past, would get shirts from them. Um, some of my children getting shirts from them. Anyways, um, the Charles Thierry Company sells approximately 500,000 shirts in America, yearly. And they've got showrooms in Manhattan. But the, the, the company realized that there was one store in Lakewood, New Jersey... It was actually selling 20% of all the shirts they sold yearly. That was one store was selling 100,000 shirts. So when you have a, one store that's just selling way above and beyond what everybody else is selling, you, you got you to find out what's going on. Like, what is with this store? So two, I don't know if it's the heads of the company, founders of the company, they flew into New Jersey to have a meeting to meet this fellow who is selling so many shirts. So they have the address, and they see that they're not in the business district. They're not in a mall. They're on a regular street with houses. Okay, but this is the address. They knock on the door. Guy opens the door, brings them in, sits them down by the dining room table, and they're starting to talk to him about... uh, about all the shirts he sells. And then there's a knock on the door. So he sends his eight-year-old daughter to the door, and his daughter opens the door, and there's somebody standing there, and he tells the daughter what he wants, and uh, she comes back to her father. He wants three shirts this size. The father's like, hey, go into the garage, and um, it's on this shelf. Give him the three shirts he wants. He'll give you the money. And he turns to the two... Um, company people, and he says, uh, this is how I do business. Someone's usually home. Anybody who wants one of your shirts knocks on our door. They tell us what they want. They give us a check. We go to the garage. Um, we take the shirts. We sell it to them. We give it to him. So the these two people were, like, flabbergasted. Like, you're telling us that you are our largest seller of our shirts and your whole business is out of your garage, and your eight-year-old daughter is selling the shirts to these guys? He says, yeah. He says, let me explain to you. You, you, you got to know where I'm coming from. 
So he takes them to BMG. BMG is the largest uh, post-high school, Talmudic post-high school, you'll call it a college if you'd like, um, for sure in the country. There In Israel, I'm not sure if there's a place in Israel as large. There may be, but certainly in America. And they probably have 11 or 12 study halls. Each study hall holds between six and 800, some upwards of 1,000 people. And he brings these guys in. And if you ever walk in, you are just blown away. You walk in and there is a roar of people studying the Talmud. Just a roar. And you can stand there and watch. Some are standing, some are sitting, um, fighting, yelling, trying to figure out what's going on in the Talmud. It is a sight to behold. And these two guys never saw such a sight in their life. And they're blown away. Thousand guys in the room. So the businessman says, You see what they're all wearing? They're all wearing white shirts. Right? There's there's, I don't know, seven or eight thousand guys that are doing this every day. Right? How many shirts do I have to sell? That's just these guys. Right? There's younger, there's older, there's a lot of white shirts going on around here. And when he took him back to his house, he asked him, like, what did you notice? He said, You know what I noticed? He says, nobody was leaning back in their chair. Everybody was hunched forward, standing, sitting, but majorly engaged. And we were blown away. person who I was hearing the story from, he says, you know, why do we need an out, somebody who never saw such a, such a scene to blow us away? We should be blown away all the time with such a, with, knowing that that's what all these guys are doing. But anyways... That was a story I heard this week. I thought it was a fascinating story. Uh, but of course, before we get into the show, right, to all our listeners, I know you guys love the show and I do need your help, right? We got to spread the show. We need more people to find out. We got to take care of our costs here. So please go to my homepage, hit that donate button, leave your name. I'll give you a shout out. You want a memory of a happy birthday in advance, of course. I do thank all of you. So we are in. We are at the end of the first book, right? There's five books of Moses. The first one is called Voracious or Genesis. We will be finishing this book, this Shabbos, and when we finish the Torah reading, so whoever gets that final uh, is called up to the Torah, so everyone will yell out, Chazak, 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 you should be strong, continue to be strong, strong in your Torah study, Strong in your keeping the Torah. That's the end of the first book. And then next week, we will begin the second book called Shemos, or the book of Exodus. Now, if the second book, which we're pretty familiar with, that's that's the creation of the Jewish nation. Right, we're going to be slaves, and Moses will come, and he'll take us out of Egypt, and we'll, we'll be in the desert, and we'll get the Torah, and then... And then we'll build the tabernacle, right? So the, the second book is the creation of the Jewish people. So what's the first book? So technically, the first book is the creation of the world. The difficulty with that is the creation of the world takes place in the first Torah portion called Beratius, Genesis, right? God created the world in six days, seventh day he rested, now we have the Sabbath. Okay, what's everything else for? I mean, nice stories, don't get me wrong, 
right? Very exciting. Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel and then and then Abraham and the ten tests and Isaac and the binding of Isaac and Jacob and his twelve sons and and starting up with Joseph and sending him to Egypt and then Joseph becomes the viceroy and then there's a famine and then the brothers come down and Joseph brings the whole family down and now we're in Egypt. So that was pretty good. In about twelve seconds. Um, I gave you the whole rundown of the first book, but w- what do we need it for? Like, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I love the stories. I teach this all the time. But what's it for? So Nachmanides says that the purpose of the first book is he's actually looking at it to help us to not um, be swayed by philosophers. Philosophy, which I am not a philosopher, but philosophy has certain, um, I guess, tenets, certain core beliefs in philosophy. And Nachmanides tells us that the book of Genesis, of Beratius, the book that we are now completing, is busy telling us not to be impressed with philosophy and that it's actually wrong. For example, even if philosophers were to believe that God created the world, but philosophers will say God could care less about this world. If there's a God, God has to be so far and above this world, he could care less what happens in this world. So that, you need all these Torah portions to tell you God very much cares what happens to the world. The world is going off the deep end. God brings a flood. The world is looking to rebel. He knocks down the Tower of Babel. We have an Abraham come along. Abraham wants to teach the world about God. God will protect Abraham. Then he'll have an Isaac. Then he'll start uh, Jacob. And if God didn't care, then all these things would be by the wayside. All the miracles, all the things that take place in the very beginning of the formulation of the world and the Jewish people would not, God wouldn't bother. If God doesn't care, so it's not happening. It's just Sodom and Gomorrah, right? All these things, right, clearly show that God cares about the world. So the first thought of philosophy, that if, there, if there's such a thing as a God, that God could care less about the world, that you see clearly is not true. Next, you need to know that God talks to people. Philosophers say a God is not talking to people. Doesn't make sense to them. Why would a God talk to people? So again, we have the Torah where God he talks to Noah, God talks to Abraham, God talks to Isaac, God talks to Jacob, God talks to Avimelech, God talks to Pharaoh. Right? God talks to people when necessary. That's the idea of prophets, which is not what I'm looking to get into right now. But this the philosophers say that God doesn't talk to people is incorrect. You see from the Torah, that's clearly not true. Then, we also need to know that philosophers would like to believe that there's no reward and punishment. There's no reward and punishment. That again, the first book is telling us not true. The world is, again, is uh, sinning. There's a flood. The Tower of Babel, the rebelling against God, they're dispersed around the world. Abraham serves God, he's rewarded, God promises him Israel, 
and uh, how how large his nation will become. Same with Isaac, same with Jacob. There is reward and punishment. Sodom and Gomorrah, the rotten people, everything's turned over. There is reward and punishment. Again, not like the philosophers. So therefore, this first book, the book of Genesis, is all teaching us all the things we need to know, like our, the, our basic tenets of our religion. There is a God. We believe in God. God cares. God speaks to prophets. Uh, there's reward and punishment. There's a world after this world. Otherwise, what's the point? Right? All these things of who and what we are and where we're coming from, that is what we need the book of Genesis, the book of Horatius for. So we talked in the last show about uh, life, really. Right? Last week's last, uh, last show was really talking about life, the, that Jacob lived, that Joseph lived. But I just wanted to touch on on a few points. So Jacob Jacob dies. At the beginning of the third portion, Jacob tells Joseph, he calls him in, and he says, I need you to promise me that you will not bury me in Egypt. Why doesn't Jacob want to be buried in Egypt? So Rashi says three reasons. First of all, he he does want to become an idol as the Egyptians will worship him. He does want to become an idol. Second of all, there's going to be a plague of lice, of bugs, and he, and he knows, we talked about this again in the last show, that his body is not decomposing, and the fact of the matter is that, it's whatever people want to believe, but a body feels what's going on. If you cut up a body, it feels it. And thirdly, he wants to be buried in Israel. I'm so, Yeah, he wants to be buried in Israel. It says... Uh, when uh, the bodies will come up, um, what's called Tchias HaMesim, when God in the end will resurrect all the people who died throughout the generations. So they're going to come up in Israel. So if, you, if you're buried outside of Israel, you're going to have to like, roll through these tunnels, and that was a suffering that Jacob didn't want. Now it is interesting, I just saw a, um, I just got an email. There's a beautiful organization um, that they're, goal is to teach people the importance of burial, the importance, we don't want people to be cremated, the importance of Jewish burial to honor the body. As I told you, the body feels things that happens. If a, if a, if a body is cremated, so then uh, the body's in terrible suffering. It was the, That's what the Nazis did. They went ahead and they burnt everybody. And people say, oh, it's better for the environment, it's better for the environment. Okay, nonsense, it's not better for the environment. And really for a family, right? He, uh, they just sent me like this email that people should make sure to have the uncomfortable conversation because if we don't ask somebody what they wanted, all of a sudden we find out the last minute they wanted to be cremated and they put somebody in charge and now there's nothing that we can do. And that body, first of all, is going to suffer terribly. And by the way, so are the children because people want a place to go back. They want to be able to visit to have a conversation with the person they were lost, that, that passed away. Going to a grave could be very emotional for many people, but it's important to them. They, a relative died, they want to go talk to that relative, they want to visit that relative. It brings back all the good memories that people had when the person was alive. And if all we have is an urn with ashes, it's all gone. And that opportunity will be lost forever. You can't un 
cremate someone. So they talked to us. So whatever, this organization sent me a um, sent me some emails. They asked for some stories. They gave them some stories that we've said over the show over the years. In any case, Jacob tells Joseph, you have to promise me that you will not allow me to be buried in Egypt. So Joseph says, no problem. So Jacob says, no problem is not good enough. I need you to promise me. So Joseph says, fine, I promise. Which was really a good idea. Because after Jacob dies, and there's the 40 days of the embalming we talked about, and there's the 30 days of national mourning for Egypt, for this Jacob who saved their country, because when Jacob come down, it was only the second year of the hunger. There were still five years left. But when Jacob comes down, the Nile River rises up to greet him. So now the banks are overflowing with water. Huh. Banks are overflowing with water. Now we can plant. Now we have food. Because it doesn't rain in Egypt. Their water supply, their watering their fields, is dependent on the Nile River overflowing. If it doesn't overflow, starvation. So the country understood they had a tremendous thanks to Jacob. And uh, therefore, it's national mourning. The guy saved your country from just utter annihilation. So after the 30 days of crying, so Joseph now goes to Pharaoh. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, my father made me promise I would bury him in Israel. And the Pharaoh's not so happy, probably for multiple reasons. First of all, Jacob did save their country. It would be so honorable to build a whole uh, pyramid in his honor. Second of all, you got Joseph and his brothers. Now, Joseph is the viceroy. He's the one that's made the country into a world power. Why would you let Joseph out of your sights? Like, what if he goes back to Israel and says, hey, I ain't going back? Right? Like, that's a very troubling thought. So but for that, the Pharaoh took care of that. The children did not go to this funeral. Pharaoh may have sent up his army and important uh, officers and Jacob and the brothers, I'm sorry, Joseph and the brothers, but the children are staying behind, like hostages. Right? In other words, uh, the only way I can make sure you come back is that I keep your kids here in Egypt with me because Pharaoh does not go to the funeral. But Pharaoh, first Pharaoh says, so you promised. People break promises. So Joseph says, oh, people break promises? Uh, because I once made a promise to a king um, that I would not reveal that the king only speaks 69 out of the 70 languages. But if you say a promise is not such a big deal, then uh, okay, I guess I don't have to keep my promise. And of course the pharaoh says, whoa, 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 one second. Of course, if you made a promise, you had to keep your promise. But Joseph, this time... I let you get away with it. You pull the fast one, you win. But no more promises without my permission. Joe says, fine. Um, so now let's just pause for a second. I recently saw a very fascinating story. Actually, the story seems to be based um, here in the city of Detroit. That's way before my time. But it seems the story is based in Detroit. So... Um, the story is told that the um, the new president of the Federation was not a friend 
of the Orthodox community. So the story goes. And uh, he wanted to meet with a big rabbi in Detroit, the head of the school, also not alive anymore. And really, this rabbi did not want to meet him. But uh, he had no choice. The, this head of the, the new president of the Federation wanted a meeting, so he had a meeting with this rabbi. So at the meeting, this rabbi says to the new president, he says, I have a question for you. And he told him over the story how uh, Joseph knew all 70 languages, and when the pharaoh was testing Joseph, you know, they got through 69, but uh, the pharaoh didn't know Hebrew, and Joseph did. And the pharaoh made a big deal. He said, you have to promise you won't tell anybody. So he and and Joseph did, and and Joseph ends up using that promise to his benefit, as we just discussed. So the question is, the rabbi says to this president, he says, "Why was it necessary for the pharaoh to speak all seventy languages? Like, you speak sixty nine languages. I mean, that's pretty good. There ain't too many people out there that speak sixty nine languages. What is the big deal to the pharaoh?" that Joseph can speak one more language than he could. So the president said, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I do not know the answer to that question. Rabbi, why don't you tell me the answer to the question? So the rabbi said, as a matter of fact, I will. He says, a leader needs to speak everyone's language. The only way to be an effective leader is to understand everyone's strengths and goals. The pharaoh is supposed to be a leader. If he can't speak everybody's language, right, then he doesn't understand everybody. And if he doesn't understand everybody, he won't be an effective leader. So now the rabbi told the, the, um, the president of the federation, he says, if you are not going to speak everybody's language in this town, if you're not going to work on understanding what every group is trying to accomplish, what every group believes in, the strengths of every group, then you will not be a good leader. I have no idea if that amazing speech worked or didn't work. Again, this is way before my time, but the story is quite amazing. Anyways, so Joseph and the brothers go up to Israel with Jacob and... um, the 12 tribes will be carrying Jacob's coffin. Joseph will not carry because he's a king. Levi will not carry because he's going to carry the vessels of the tabernacle. In their place is Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons, which works out perfect because those are the 12 tribes that will camp in the desert. And they actually surround the coffin the same way that they would be carrying, um, the, the same way they're going to camp in the desert is how, they, is how they were surrounding Jacob's coffin as they transported his coffin into the land of Israel to the, to the Maris of Achpelah. So now they bury Jacob. Okay, they're on their way home, and Joseph makes a detour. Where does he detour to? He actually detours to the pit that the brothers had thrown Joseph into, the, the pit he was thrown into. The brothers are quite nervous as you and I would be in such a situation. 
Is Joseph now reminiscing what we did to him? Is he thinking? Is he now planning to to kill us? What's Joseph's plans? And like always, we've said this lesson over multiple times because I think it's well worth repeating. The brothers didn't ask Joseph why you stopped here. Why? The brothers didn't ask. But Joseph would have told them the truth. I wanted to make a blessing. There's a special blessing to be made when a miracle takes place. And this will be my last chance because the brothers didn't ask. Now they're nervous. But we can't finish this off right now because the music is playing. And I hope you've enjoyed it. Short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all wonderful sponsors and listeners. I can't do it without you. Thank you to the production team. We have David by the glass. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it.